0: contacted me while I was in on the ground in Kabul and he was like Travis I need to get a team in. I need to get a team in. Like, all right, you know, bro, whatever you need, you know, we'll get there. And then I hadn't heard from him, you know, for a month or so. He kinda of backed away from everything. But but Farrell and Hannah kinda of took the reins. And I'd known them, you know, just from having to use the communications that we do and that you you know, using signal. So you get, you know, tied into these little networks and I'm great at building teams, that's what I do. And I just started, you know, kinda of handpicking who would speak in the truth versus just talking, you know, talking a bunch of crap and I just kept over, I kept seeing, for example, Hannah and Cheryl, they were doing great stuff and everything that they said was legit and it-
1: Welcome to The Jeff Larson Show, where I interview innovators and leaders. Today on the show, I've got Travis Peterson. Travis, thanks for making this happen.
0: Thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate it. I'm um, honored to be on the show with all the guests that you've had previously. So, so I'm ready to roll.
1: Yeah. Well, founding member of the Moral Compass Foundation. Can you tell us about your foundation?
0: Absolutely. So the Moral Compass Foundation, we started it back in November after the fall of Kabul. So we back up to August. And, uh, you know, everything was going down, Taliban were coming in, and I had previously been in Afghanistan for years and years with the special mission wing, flying with, with my Afghan partners doing counter-drug missions and counter-terror missions. Left two months prior to the fall of Kabul as a private contractor, and we all saw the need for the families to get out so those guys could continue to fight, so we had already started planning to remove their families and get them to a safe country so they could fight. Unfortunately, it didn't happen. And August, you know, came pretty quickly. So I jumped on an airplane, I flew back into Kabul and tried to rescue as many of the guys and their families for like over a two week period, which of course, you know, everybody saw the videos of people trying to hang onto airplanes. And of course, you know, we lost 13 members of the US military at Abbey Gate. So it was a very chaotic period where nobody really knew what was going on. There was no answers, there was no right or wrong. You basically had to play God, you you picked and choose who would survive and who would get through those gates and who wouldn't. So after all that chaotic mess, I got back to the state and moved forward to Istanbul, Turkey, as I waited to go back into Kabul, because we tried and tried, whether it was either Uzbekistan or Tajikistan, to try and get some kind of forward movement to to get our guys and their families to safety. (laughs) And every organization that I contacted, you know, you get to the 90% mark and everything be ready to go and within 24 hours it would all fall apart and that was time and time and time again that this was happening for you know a month two months so i got really frustrated i was speaking to quite a few of the different organizations that i knew that were doing great stuff and they were frustrated too and we got to thinking and i said well let's create a tier one group a top-notch group and that is where moral Confederation began and we started off with I want to say 11 organizations in the beginning, and now we're at 18 organizations. With you know, every week I get a call to someone that wants to wants their organization to be umbrellaed under Moral Compass. So that is that's where it started, and why. Because the resources weren't there, there was a lot of donors that were giving money to organizations, and they didn't understand who they were giving that money to, and they failed to do that. By creating Moral Compass, we were able to funnel money and funds directly to the organizations that needed. So for an example, if I have a specialty with food, ACEs and AIDS, which is a foundation within Moral Compass, they are by far the best at getting food to Afghans and Ukrainians and so on and so forth. So I can take those funds, direct it to them, and we can spread that wealth out throughout 18 organizations. And instead of feeding what ACEs and eights might have, we're now feeding 18 different organizations. So on average, we do about $15,000 a month just in feeding individuals. And then on top of that, we have visa paperwork, passport paperwork, all that stuff costs money. So I have another organization that I might push that to, and they'll be the experts on that for that month or two months. But the idea and the concept behind it is to spread the wealth so that not that each individual organization has to bear the burden of trying to rescue the world. It's now 18 organizations working together with the same common goal. And we're all veterans. Most of us come from the cooperation, special forces background. So we all speak the same language and there is no hurt feelings. You know, it's peer-to-peer evaluation what we do. And it's We don't like what somebody's doing. We let them know, and that's the end of it. So it's very, I set it up, I set the structure up in a sense of military, but I also put a civilian niche into it. And that is, you know, being able to vote somebody off the island, basically. I didn't want to make it formalized, but I did want to make it a foundation that is true, you know, and have board members and chairs and so on and so forth. But so far, everything's you know come together pretty quickly. I'm not a businessman. Most of the people doing this are not a business business mindset people. You know, we are. We like to give after stuff. You know, somebody tells us to go, they point and shoot us, and we go and take care of it. So it's been new for all of us creating this this entity that we have and that's, you know, that's basically where the moral compass is. It's the emergency button currently for Ukraine, for Afghanistan. And we get contacted daily, you know, there's people working 24 seven, trying to support all the efforts in a, in a humanitarian capacity.
1: Yeah. I have so many questions about it. Maybe before we jump in, I'd love to talk a little bit more about your background and the special mission wing and, and what that was.
0: Sure. Absolutely. So I joined the military right out of high school, and I became a nuclear weapons specialist. This was pre 11 This was the 1996-97 time frame. But I joined the military, became a nuclear weapons specialist, And that just wasn't, that wasn't my bag. I wanted to fly. I wanted to go do stuff. I wanted to get into combat, even though there was nothing going on. And then, of course, 9-11 kicked off, and I got picked up to go fly CSAR, combat search and rescue, trained for a couple years doing that. And I loved every minute of it. And with all things, you kind of get bored and you want to, Open the next door and the next envelope, right? So I was sitting in Afghanistan and a friend of mine hit me up and he said, Hey, Travis, I want you to, to assess for the 6th Support Operations Squadron. And I'd heard about it, and knew everything about it. I said, yeah, absolutely. But I would put my feelers out to do a couple other things in the army as well. And I looked at my wife and I said, Well, whichever one comes first, we're going to take. And 6th SOS was the first one. And, you know, with PCS, we moved down here to Florida that year and we've been here ever since. So I got down here to the Sixth Special Operations Squadron, did a couple more years of training. Um, My aircraft was the MI-17, the Russian-built helicopter. We use that because it's what's used in most third world countries. But trained on that, became an expert on everything MI-17, and then did some training throughout the world to be able to to fly that aircraft and and to operate in environments that are not cohesive to nice people, you know? So, tech, uh, originally I was a Spanish speaker and we had an influx of that going on, so I ended up getting tasked to go to Afghanistan and stand up the Special Mission Wing, which was a already elite unit prior. As an air interdiction unit doing drug interdiction for for u.s state department dea and you know other organizations in the coalition well that had changed you know a, within a year and they wanted it to be more of a counter-terror and a counter-drug squadron so we put our heads together the airport the army the marines and the navy all of us came together and we created what is now the special Mission Wing. and it was. And collected pilots and crew members, the best of the best, the most educated that you could possibly find. We sent them to the U.S. and a few European countries for training multiple times. So on average, most of those guys spent about two years in the U.S., whether it was English training or, or how to fly. And then we brought them back to Afghanistan and we kind of gave them the fire hose effect, you know, and said, hey, you're going to sit as a co-pilot or you're going to sit on the right side as a door gunner and we're going to go out and we're going to do these combat missions until you guys feel comfortable enough to do it. And after about three years of being able to do that, you know, they really started picking up on everything. And we were able to institute what is called Green Platoon and it's it's a concept that the 160th Special Operations Regiment had, and we, we, most of our pilots came from, from the 160th, and we, we catered the training to what they had already known. And our Afghans were able to pick it up very quickly, and they were the first and only pilots and crew members to fly with night vision goggles in Afghanistan. And they did it phenomenal. So they got passed very quickly to <laughs> do every combat mission that was that was feasible. So if you know, if there was a soft team that was out there with a ground team, they were contacting us and we were working side by side to either destroy a threat or or to, to pull those drugs out and destroy the, the drug network that was there. So all of our Afghans were just phenomenal, you know, just the best people you, you could possibly have. And in our world and the the soft community and in the special operations community, we, we're a little bit different than everybody else. You know, we don't we don't live in a nice asparagus, you know we typically live with our team we eat with our team so i've met you know most of my afghans for their family been to their houses you know they took me to the zoo one time (laughs) you know so so it's a different relationship that we have. And about oh, it's probably eight months into my first year with the special mission wing, and we ended up having a helicopter crash, which thankfully everybody survived, but it was a coalition and you know that kind of struck fear in a few people. And one of our coalition partners, you know, their commander said, Well, we don't want we're not gonna trust the Afghan flying anymore. So I told my well, I'll tell you what, I said, If you if you come out here, I said we will go and we'll fly. And I said, I'll put myself on the aircraft. I'll have a U.S. pilot, you come on, jump on board, and then you walk, and you tell me when an Afghan is flying or when a U.S. guy is flying. And he couldn't tell. And after we landed, he said, Travis, don't have to say anymore. My team's good. They're going to jump on you and go jump on your aircraft and go with you guys anywhere. So, you know, it's the the, the myth that, that, you know, kind of hurts us today. You know, everybody thinks that Middle East is, you know, it's a terrorist network. Well, it's not, you know, and... I love to use the the words, educate and advocate for those that haven't been around the world. You don't know, they'll ask me questions and I'll tell you, you know, they're family, people they are just like us, and just the backup after the crash, I had to have quite a few surgeries and I got visited in the States by probably six different Afghans that flew over to, just to make sure that I was okay. So that tells you of the relationship that we had and the bond, you know, and me still to this day, we talk you know, every day. And that's why we built Moral Compass. That's why I built Moral Compass. It's because these guys, they deserve a whole lot more than than what is being given. You know, I just moved one of my best friends to to Pakistan last week. I've been hiding him for the last 10 months. You know, he's been separated from his wife and kids. And I just got tired of doing it. And I said, look, bud, we're just going to move you to Pakistan. I'll hold you there. And we'll wait it out. There's nothing much more we can do, you know. But these guys could have been the first ones on airplanes getting out that you know and that's the that's the hard part and the hard reality and you're seeing it every day with these they're they're hurt they're broken they have no money you know and then it's you know you got to do what you got to do to survive so you're going to see people going over to the Taliban to work for them you know and that's a threat to the U.S. that's a direct threat to the U.S. we train these guys with the best trainers in the world and here we are.
1: Well, it makes me excited that there's people like you and the 18 organizations in the Federation. You know, on the show, one of my former unit buddies, who's been a a real big help at our charity, Child Rescue, was a part of of helping a number of folks get out. And one of them was this super brave (laughs) Afghan girl. She's like 19. And Taliban wasn't going to let her and her 150 classmates through. And she kind of stood up and put her life on the line, literally, and and got through. And then they... Still kidnapped three of them, and she went back again, got those up. And so since having her on the show, we've been... Trying to do a, a tiny version of what you do and get her some exposure and and kind of give her the reward for standing up for what's right in this country. And I can't announce it yet, but we have been helping facilitate some fundraising for her to get a scholarship. And and that something really big just came through last week. And and once it's official, we're really looking forward to announce it. But it's been encouraging to me that our brothers and sisters here, you know, U.S. and Canada, once they hear these stories and they get to feel some of that personal connection, just how many actual former guests from this show we're willing to reach out to their contacts. And that's where this this big opportunity has come through. Yeah. And it's that that human, like hearing a real life story about like you have, you personally have a buddy, you've been hiding for 10 months, now you've gone to Pakistan. And it's not a statistic, it's a human, you know? Right, right. Uh, it's it's so depressing to me to see how many people that helped our country we've let down. I mean, it's so encouraging to me the bravery and the persistence and the endurance that is also happening to to not give up on them. Good question for you. You know, it's Steve Tree, retired Air Force colonel, and, and Cheryl over at Argo that got us connected. What was it about Argo and their mission that you thought they'd make a good fit for the Federation?
0: Oh, uh, With Argo, I had uh, Betsy Jensen. <clears> he <throat> had contacted me while I was in on the ground in Kabul. And he was like, Travis, I I need to get a team in. I need to get a team in. I was like, all right, you know, bro, whatever you need, you know, we'll get there. And then I hadn't heard from him, you know, for a month or so. He kind of backed away from everything, but, but Daryl and Anna kind of took the reins. And I would known them, you know, just from having to use the communications that we do and that, you you know, using signal. So you get, you know, tied into these little networks and I'm great at building teams. That's what I do. And I just started, you know, kind of handpicking who would speak in the truth. Versus just talking, you know, talking a bunch of crap. And I just kept over, I kept seeing that, for example, Anna and Cheryl, they were doing great stuff and everything that they said was legit and it would come through. So, you know, that, that's what I did with all 18. I sat back and I, I watched them for a, quite a long time before I, I reached out to them. So,
1: for people not familiar, can you tell people a little bit about Argo's Focus?
0: Yeah, Argo is focused on the, the, the ones that aren't military. Um, so they do a lot with SIBs and they do a lot with at-risk females. That's their main focus, but they have around 150 handlers currently and just doing phenomenal work. You know, there's, there's so many great people out there, but, but it's all volunteer, you know, and nobody's getting paid to do the and to do the, you know, yeah. 10 to 11 months later. And these people are still going strong. So it just, it shows, it, it shows what you were just talking about, that strength and what it, what it means to be an American. And that's not to leave anybody behind, you know, and if you got to do it at your own you know.
1: <laughs> right, I do feel like in some ways it's almost like all females are at risk in Afghanistan. You know, I was reading the Wall Street Journal yesterday. What's happening in maternity wards under the Taliban? Right. I mean, it's it's tough. Man.
0: It's absolutely disgusting what's going on. And again, you know, I like to educate and advocate. And that the one thing that I want to say is that Afghan women are usually the smartest and the bravest and the strongest in the family. You know, but most people think that's a myth, but that's true. So for them to have their rights taken away. Such as what's happening with the Taliban, it not only breaks my heart, um, but it disgusts me, and it fills me with you know with rage, where I just want to go and do what we used to do and take them out. They're bad people, and they shouldn't be in charge. So you know, again, educate and advocate, stand up for what you believe and we need to support Afghanistan the same way we support Ukraine there's no I, reason
1: actually can we talk about yeah. yeah can we talk about that for a minute sounds like you guys have been able to help a bit
0: absolutely absolutely, yeah so with Ukraine when it first kicked off we were you know the first ones trying to organize and set up evacuations whether with evacuations or even food run I was speaking with dynamo quite a bit during the beginning and then again aces an eight ACE, set up a network and from that network it is the, you know, the premiere for for Ukraine right now, whether it's intelligence, whether it's movement. We do a little bit of everything now, you know, and that's on top of Afghanistan. So, so it can be it can be confusing and uh, and tough at times, but the rewards are just absolutely amazing. You know, you see what people are doing and, you know, you might have 10 days in a row that are just absolutely horrible, but then you get that one day, that one good day of hope that's going to carry you for another 10 days, you know, and, and I use an example that, I, you know, I received a message last night from a married couple that I got out of Abbey Gate on August 25th. And I haven't spoken to them until a couple weeks ago, and they reached out, and they live in Annadale up in Virginia. They had a sponsor, a U.S. couple, that brought them in, took care of them, got them on their feet. They became best friends, brothers, etc. You know, and, and uh, this couple, they, they threw him a wedding reception here a couple of weeks ago and they sent me all the pictures and everything. But the message I got last night was just so humbling and, you know, I had a tear in my eye and I had to reread it, you know, because the onions were just too much, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but it was just the most heartfelt message I've ever had. And there's, there's hundreds and thousands of stories like that that are, you know, that we can tell today because of what we're doing. Yeah. You know, good Americans. Can, can you tell us one of the Ukraine ones? Ukraine? Yeah. So the post actually ties in with Afghanistan. So we have, we were able to get a couple people out and they went to Ukraine. So they thought they were going to be good. They got out of Afghanistan and now they're in Ukraine. Well, we get the phone call and it was with Flanders Field with Ben Owen and his group. And he's like, "Trapped! my guys that I just got out of Afghanistan are now in Ukraine. And now we need to evacuate them out of Ukraine. So we put our heads together. We came up with a plan, and we were able to get them out of Ukraine within a couple of days. So they're they're sitting in another country right now. They're safe, but still not that movement where we need them to be, and that's here in the U.S. But yeah, there's there's a lot of a lot of feel good stories. I think that the biggest one is the the baby. You know, when you, you when you're doing it for so long, you see children that are being born. You know, the wives were pregnant. You know, at the time of the fall of Kabul or with Ukraine. And now you get pictures of them holding their you know, their their infant and you see that that's because of what we do. That's another life. That's a generation that's coming because of, because of good people standing up and, and doing what is right and not not going with the grain, but against the grain. So.
1: Yeah. If somebody listening today wants to donate, what's the best website?
0: Absolutely. So um, with Moral Compass, you can go www.moralcompassfederation.com or .org, or you can go to the Special Operations Association of America website. And click on the Moral Compass Federation from there. I use The Special Operations Association has an umbrella for lobbying. We kind of, we kind of mirror each other. We have each other's backs when it comes to to everything that we need to get done. But yeah, www.moralcompassfederation.com or .org. And I've got a list of all 18 organizations with hyperlinks in there. Click on either any of them and you can donate directly to them or you can donate directly to Moral Compass.
1: Yeah, that's great. I want to, I want to talk a little bit about more about your training and background and, and what's prepared you. For what you're doing now why don't we start with why don't we start with some of the search and rescue stuff what's what's something what was hard about training for that uh, with
0: with c-star you know it's you you take up you take up you an know and the, the pjs i wasn't a pj i was a flight engineer and a door gunner but the pjs have an oath and it's it, it's it's not just pj centric it it's anybody that's doing c-star and that that is that others may live You know, and I've got it tattooed in my arm. I've got my Green Peak tattooed in my butt, you know, for getting my first rescue. And that's, you know, tradition of what we do. But to answer your question of the hardest part is, is when you stand up that line and it's the first time that you realize that you could die and you go to save somebody else's life. On when it's the worst day of someone's life, that is when you're called to go to work. So, you know, it's never sunshine and roses when we go to work. It's the worst situation possible. Um, so I think for me, it was that realization of going, you know, every, every time I do this, there's a chance that I don't come home. And eventually, you know, that kind of subsides and you push it away. But, uh, you know, after everybody's retired and everybody's, you know, sitting around the bonfires and drinking, you look back on those days and go, how in the hell did I do that? You know, was I craving There's no way I would, you know, attempt any of that stuff anymore. So I think that was... For me, that was my my breaking into the next step in my life, you know, which was, what more can I do? I want more, you know. Once you have that adrenaline going, you just want to keep pushing and pushing. So I did. And I looked at going with CAG. I looked at going across and over to the Army for Green Berets and then the 6th Special Operations Squadron. So I put packages in for all, and here I am, the 6th was the first one that picked me up. So my wife and family, we picked up from Las Vegas and moved out here to Florida and have been here ever since. And I spent another couple of years training to do foreign internal defense, which is along the same lines of how a dream beret does their pipeline. You know, you've got language courses, you've got weapons courses, E and E courses, so many different driving courses, you know, everything that you could possibly think of you're going through, but you're also being tested on your, on your ability to survive on your own, you know? So when we go out the door, it's not 200 people going you know, it might be six to twelve people and you go into a country that might not have any other US personnel in it. And you're responsible for, you know, taking care of yourself. So that was the eye opener that I had. And for me, when I went to Afghanistan to set up the special mission wing, I went on my own. I was by myself. You know, I didn't have any support network. But I, you know, I went back to all the skills and all the training that I ever had. And it becomes very clear when you've been trained in the special operations world or the special forces world compared to a conventional world. People listen to you because you do have the answer or you have a way to find out the answer. There, there is no, well, I don't know. You can't do that, you know? Maybe I'll find somebody else to do it. There, there isn't, you're it, you're the only person. So um, so I did that and special mission, the special mission wing was born. We started off with maybe, Probably a hundred aircrew, pilots and aircrew, and by the time you know,
1: and were those yeah, go were on. those guys from the conventional Afghan Air Force that you screwed so, over to come over for this?
0: Yeah, so in the very initial stages, that's what we were doing. As we were pulling people, we were pulling the best that they had from the conventional side. And they, of course, they were angry because we were taking our best people, but, but there was a lot of incentive, you know? So eventually we got to the point to where these guys were recruiting their own and then we would vet them. They, you know, when you talk about vetting and security clearance, you know, they're at the top, they've received it all. So, you know, if they had a family member that they wanted to bring into special mission wing to be a pilot, they go through that same vetting process. And and then, you know, two, three years later, after all of the training and taken care of, they, they end up joining the squadrons. And by the time, you know, last May, we had around 1,000 personnel, four different squadrons all throughout Afghanistan, each squadron doing two to three missions a day and doing what, you know, what special operations does and that, take out the bad guys. And a lot of people don't see that. They see the conventional side of Afghanistan. And I'll be the first one to admit, those guys suck. You know, they, they weren't, they didn't, they were the, they weren't paid well. They weren't dedicated. They weren't volunteers, you know, with the special mission wing. These guys were the most dedicated people out there. They knew what they were putting on You know, I've lost so many of my friends. Just, you know, back in March, Rahimi, who was on track to be, you know, the the next commander for the special went out to do a, a raid. There was some intel that, you know, bad guys were, were targeting them. And uh, it was a four helicopter assault mission. And it came over the radio, said that the, the area was pretty hot. So Rahimi told the other three helicopters to hold. And he went in to, to rescue some guys. And as he was taken off and he was shot out of the air by, you know, with an RPG and killed him and the entire crew and the, and the patients they were trying to evacuate. But it just goes to show that these guys were all in. You know, there was no, you know, inshallah whatever happened. It was, you know, we're gonna fight for our brothers. We're gonna do everything we possibly can. I can go back to the very beginning of starting the special mission wing. And at the time we didn't have medic, you know, Afghan medics, we didn't have we didn't have any So you'd get out to a battlefield, take a lot of casualties, and, you know, we'd fill up the helicopters with, you know, body parts and people. And by the time we'd get back to Kabul, you know, there was no chance for these guys to survive. So we saw that, and, you know, probably a month or two months in, I just started grabbing a medical pack and started patching people up as much as we can. One of the, he's now general, but he was a colonel general at the time. So I what I was doing and I was carrying, it with a double amputee, he lost both his legs. And I had him, you know, flung over my shoulder And I was coming out of the back of the helicopter and see all recordable and he presented it to his his squadron the next day and said, if Travis, you know, if the American Travis can be out there saving our Afghan lives, we need to be doing the same thing. And from that point on, we started training medics and having those guys on board and it just created a whole new generation. So, it's, you know, it's again, it's the feel-good stuff that you got to look back on. It's, you know, you know, losing Rohini was, you know, that, that hurt everybody, you know, but we've lost so many prior to that. But just seeing all the good stuff that came out of, of what we were doing was, to me, the epitome of my career. You know, if I go back to, if I go back to April, last April, I remember flying around Kabul and looking at the city and how lit up it was. It was, you know, one o'clock in the morning, I we was just doing a training mission. But I saw how lively it was. It reminded me of Vegas, you know. It was just lit up. It was beautiful. And you know, we landed, and I I remember I sat on top of the rook that night, and I was, you know, in a happy, a happy place. And then fast forward to August, you know, when I flew back in there to grab my guys, it was it was like World War Z. It was it was chaos. It was disgusting. Everybody had wanted. We have a we have a memorial to everyone that we lost at Kabul, and it's a It's an old MI-17 helicopter, and what the Afghans did is they put, you know, they planted flowers and a memorial for all the guys lost and put up pictures and everything, kind of a shrine, if you may. And that was the most, that was the biggest request I got from the U.S. guys that, you know, obviously weren't there with me. I'm like, Travis, can you get a picture of the memorial? And it was the night before I left for the last C seventeen. I went over there and I was able to just sit with the with the with the boys at that memorial and just kind of breathe them in and say goodbye to them because I knew, you know, listen, this, this is gonna be gone within twenty four hours. And, you know, I keep that as a, a screensaver for my phone and I you know, i send it out to to most of the guys that have ever worked you know, partner nation stuff with, with the specimen and, you know, that is, that's the pride profession right now. You know, what we, when you put so much time and blood into something and watch it get destroyed within, you know, a couple months when it could have been prevented, it hurts. You know, it's, it's a big sting and, you know, that's where we're at mind-wise going, why, why did it happen? Why did we give up our lives to, to do what we do just to see it all fall apart? You know, we could have done the same thing we did for Ukraine and pushed some weapons in there and our guys would have been great. You know, um, most of my guys, they were tasked. They were they were advised to fly their aircraft to Uzbekistan and Tajikistan and drop people off and then come back but nobody told them that they were going to be detained once they landed to get fuel in Uzbekistan. They had no way to get back, and we didn't have communication for around four days because of that, and they are still separated from their family. Their wives and children are still in Kabul. And those guys can't go and get them. You know, they were detained for six months and then the U.S. brought them here to the States. And there still isn't a plan for them, but we ask the question every day, you know, whether it's with DOS or, or with DOD, and we just can't get them an answer. It's tough, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, obviously, I have a, a lot of memorabilia, you know, from Afghanistan and, you know, I walk in my garage and they're tough. You know, I walk in my living room and I have stuff. So, I'm, you know, it's a constant reminder of, you know, of, of the past. But I use that as, you know, motivation because we can get back to that again. We just have to give them support. We just got to give them, a, you know, give them a hand. You know, there's a whole generation that we built there. For 20 years, we built a new generation and those people want what we gave them. The Afghans call it the the American tribe, you know, and that's one of the most educated, the, the females alone, you know, the, the, the smiles on their faces. The females that I was able to get out of Abbey Gate, you know, there's been a few that have reached out to me and they're in college, you know, they're going to university, you know, they're picking up right where they're left off and they're thriving, you know, they're they the top of their class.
1: Yeah. I've got something to say about that. This, this young woman who we had on the show, asked her if I'd hear, after we had her on the show, we, we were trying to just, you know, see what little things we could do to help her get, you know, because they, you know, they took everything before she went through the gates. They they took her, I mean, all her money, all her stuff. She literally was allowed her clothes and her passport, and that's all she was allowed when she got through the last check stop, right? And former former CAD guy, his family, let her and her sister come live with them in Virginia, which has been great. But so we, we've just been like making some calls and getting her some speaking opportunities so so we've had her able to do some speaking to universities you know with Zoom calls and and we've actually got some of the largest couple of the largest multi-billion dollar corporations in the country who are other clients that are like yeah she can she can do a leadership talk to our group you know and she gets fiery she's like she's like anybody says that it was a waste of time over there doesn't know about me and my family right she says my mom my mom was one month away from having Draguri when the Taliban took over the first time And she was so disappointed to lose an education. And so when the Americans came in and helped us, she raised us different. And me and my sister and all of us got educations. Her sister was here in the U.S. getting her MBA. She had been at school in Bangladesh, all these things. She's like, my whole life was only possible because of you American soldiers. Like, it was not for nothing. My whole life exists because what? of it, and the Taliban, the Taliban are very poor managers, right. so they won't be able to hold on to my country. And one day, I'm going to be able to get back there and help help the women that didn't make it out like I did. Right, and uh, it's like <laughs> I feel like so inspired, <laughs> and those it's and those like so inspiring, and those
0: those are the people that I love the most. You know, I could talk with them for days and days, and I have them. You know, I have them in a the network, and they just they fire you up, and and it's understandably why. And if you use the analogy of, you know, take it, if if it was to happen in a state, how many people would get fired up? You know, I'm not saying that 100% of Afghanistan is, you know, the brightest and most educated. And I'm not saying that 100% of the United States is the most brightest and educated. You can't do that, right? So if I take and I go, I've got 10 to 20% that, you know, deserve a chance. Those are the people that we want. You know, that's what what you're looking for. If you take 30 or 40%, now you're taking everything out of the country and you're not going to be able to rebuild, right? So we, we want those people with the fire that wanna go back into Afghanistan and build Afghanistan back to the way it's supposed to be. And that you know, that's what I push constantly is, you know, eventually we're gonna to get to that point where we're gonna get Afghanistan, we're gonna get Kabul back to the way it was, but we have to have the support to be able to do instead of people, you know, forgetting about it and saying, Oh, it's in the rearview mirror. We don't, we, don't, we don't we we spent twenty years there. We're not gonna go back. Well that's impossible. you know, I've I've been doing foreign internal defense most of my career and, you know, this isn't how you do it. You know, foreign internal defense, it's a, a long-term commitment. It's 100, 200 years. It's partnerships. It's building relations. It's not leaving people behind.
1: I tell you, well, I tell you, sure. it, well, I tell you with, with asthma. You know, my friends group doing some similar things to you guys. You know, mm-hmm. gets her over here. Let's let her and her sister move in with their family, and then do have to Nicole up together. You know, any and and the. They use this network. Gets us to use our network. These kind of things, right? And now her whole plan is she's going to get a computer science degree with emphasis in artificial intelligence, because her entire plan is to build a fintech app that, so that she, you know, once there's a break, next break in the Taliban, she wants to go back to her country and help all the women not be controlled by men using the Hawala network, where all their money is trapped, and give them a chance to make some of their own choices, and stuff. And she had that twenty years of growing up. Not under the Taliban. Now she's over here and getting into universities where that actually becomes a reality. Mm-hmm. And what a force. You know, like at some point for her to get back there and help that country. Right. Because she's one of the ones we didn't trail.
0: Right. 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 And that's the positivity that we have to that we have to promote. You know, I want to talk to her. I, I wanna bring her in. You know, I I've got so much stuff that I can could be doing with her. And that is. It it you know, Ben owens who runs flanders field he's a very inspirational guy and you know he said if you've been to and you've walked through it you have no problem going back to to grab other people and that's where we're at you know and when you when i hear that story that's the same thing she's willing to go back into to fix and to help her people and that's that's the way it should be you know but if you have the opportunity, take it. And that's what we do. That's why we're here, you know? So, so I'm very proud of her and I can't wait to to meet her someday.
1: Yeah, it'd be great. Well, it, it'll be interesting to see if there's a way for you guys to document more of your success stories. So I know you've got the same kind of stories across these 18 organizations you've been able to kind of make better together. Right. And, and I, I think it's something that for years people would benefit from. It's, and, I, you know, and I tell story.
0: you, we could write books and books and books on everything that we've been able to do. And here's the hard part. We love to tell the good success stories. We hate to tell the, you know, the horrible ones of, you know, losing people weekly to whether whether it's, you know, they're being murdered or, or starved to death. But the problem is, even with some of the people that I have here in the state, they're afraid to speak because they still have family in Afghanistan. And I did one interview and I, I brought a, a family on and their family in Afghanistan saw and they were you know taliban was knocking on their door the next day so we have to be very careful on on how we go about it but you know eventually you'll see it you'll see us all on the history channel you know we might be in our in our 70s and 80s you know telling about how it was but it's definitely a lot of good stories and i i hope i really do hope and pray that this year is going to be the year that we get a change and then we can you know we can put some folks on the stage and and tell their story because a lot of the margin for now.
1: Well, that's such great work you're doing. You know, I, I kind of want to go back, you know, I, I have maybe changing subjects a little bit. I, you know, we've had a number from, from CAG, you know, unit guys and, and Dev grew and other different special operation units yeah. on, but I haven't had any six squadron guys on before right. when you think about, you know, the selection process and training and stuff, what do you feel like got you through when it got really hard or what do you like? Did it ever get tempting to quit or, or how, how did you make it through where other guys did
0: yeah. You know, there's always the temptation to quit anything when it gets hard, you know, but it goes back to that initial stages of team building. If you're not relying on your team, you're never going to make it through. You can't, you can't do something like that on your own. You know, it takes, it takes, it takes motivation. It takes, sometimes you've got to carry your buddy. Sometimes your buddy's got to carry you. And that's, you know, that's the motivator behind it. Unfortunately, I was the, the team sergeant for my class, so I was in charge of, of motivating everybody. So I didn't really have a chance to, to want to quit, you know, but, uh, but yeah, I think- Did you feel like that was an advantage in some way? I think so. I think it prepped me for a lot of stuff. You know, it gave me an advantage of, of kind of being aware of what's coming versus, versus everybody waking up that morning going, what am I going to go through today? You know, but, but I was always prepared for the next. But yeah, I definitely think I will. Company.
1: that's great uh-huh. listen absolutely great work you're doing you. uh, our prayers are with you i'm super happy that you guys are are willing to sacrifice so much for for those people who matter just as much as our brothers sisters here absolutely. on this side of the ocean
0: absolutely i really appreciate it big fan of yours of course and, and you know i'll always be listening to you. and thank you for everything that you've done the child trafficking is something near and dear to my heart and hopefully after all of this is done i can start moving into that direction i appreciate all you
1: well we we'd love any advice or any thoughts you have for us it's uh, a lot of work left to do there but i i also have this feeling like i don't know if i've shared this on the show before but like what really got me into the counter drafting stuff was about 21 years ago i'd gone to this business conference i'm like a 21 year old kid and there's this baptist preacher speaking i don't know why a baptist preacher was speaking (laughs) to business but well actually i do because he was good and I'm not Baptist or anything, but I thought this guy was awesome. <laughs> and he he says got this southern southern drawl, and he says something about that he's pretty sure God has has a mission for everybody. He's like, and if you don't know what yours is, God's giving you a hint. It might be what makes you the angriest. Right, I that like, immediately. I knew exactly what it was. People, people abusing kids for money as a business. Right, I was, like for me, that was my thing, and I haven't. I've only recently started telling people this, but like I've tried to quit child rescue like two or three times. Right, and and you know, just burned out, and just you know, and if like it won't leave me alone kind yes. of a thing
0: you know yeah it's funny you say that cause and so I'm, like, i had it everybody doesn't
1: have to work on child rescue you have to work on what you think yes. you need to work on Yep. and i'm glad that there's yes. you know you and your 18 organizations are working what you guys think you need to be worked on Thanks. right now
0: i really appreciate that i had that same come to jesus moment here about three weeks ago so i was like why won't they why can i not walk away you know but i can't i've never been able to it just keeps bringing me back in so it, it's a calling you know it's, it's something that is unexplainable, but I appreciate everything you do and your team and everybody that's out there doing what they do.
1: Well, thanks for making time for the show. Thanks for all the great work you're doing. Can we do the website one more time?
0: Absolutely. Thanks, Jeff, for reminding me I'm not good at this stuff. I'm horrible at raising money. <laughs> www.moralcompassfederation.org or .com, or you can go to www.soa.com, Special Operations Association of America. But within my webpage, you can click on the 18 Organizations They've got donate buttons there, or you can just donate directly to Moral Comp. That's the easiest way for me to fund all the guys and gals. And to, to ultimately, the, the end goal is to get some of these volunteers paid instead of having everybody work for free. Yeah. So if you do that, do it through Moral Compass, and hopefully we can get some funds going and at least reward these individuals for what they do. Thanks again, Jeff. Yeah, that's Thank great.
1: And, and something else I want to bring up is that you're doing some speaking engagements. <laughs> so I think anybody who has a company or a stuff like this, you Absolutely. Know, maybe, maybe there's, I'm just going to throw it out there, maybe there's some deal of like, they could donate a little bit to the foundation. Absolutely. And, uh, I Get you as an inspiring speaker for their leadership team. I can do
0: leadership speaks. I can do insights. Inspiration. Like I can talk on any subject as long as I can believe, it? as long as I believe in it. And I, I can I can speak on it. And actually, quite a few of us have, have talked about you know advertising that out. And so if there is anybody out there, you know, um, I would love to be able to do that. And I've got I've got a great team of speakers and leaders that have that have a background that that come from around the world. So we're good at what we do.
1: Love it. Okay. Thanks everybody for listening.
0: Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it.